The time is now. Volume 3, Episode 42, this is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt from Cozen O'Connor. Hope everybody is having a great day, or great evening, or great weekend, whenever it is that you're listening to this episode. As always, I appreciate you continuing to listen. I've got a great episode for you today, as I will be joined by my partner, David Rieschenberg, to talk about how you now have to be thinking about antitrust risks when it comes to your non-compete agreements. But before we get to that, uh, I've obviously got some big news with the United States Department of Labor's new proposed overtime regulations finally released on March 7th of 2019. You certainly know the history by now, but the main point is that the Obama administration, uh, Department of Labor regs, really went nowhere, and we've been spending the last few months, if not since 2016, really, reading about and speaking about the Department of Labor's interactive sessions and speculating as to what the new rule would look like and, frankly, when it would even get proposed. But now we know what it looks like because it has been proposed, at least in draft form. It is subject to a 60-day comment period, which will start as soon as it is officially published in the Federal Register. Um, And ultimately, the final rule will get published after the Department of Labor receives and reviews what is expected to be uh, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of comments uh, from people on both sides of the aisle. I think the Department of Labor is anticipating that a final rule will ultimately be effective in January of 2020. Yes, we still have this whole calendar year, most likely, before this rule is published in final form. And I also suspect that there are going to be lawsuits uh, in some respects relating to this proposed rule. But for now, we at least know what is in and what is out when it comes to the Department of Labor's proposed rule. First, what is in? Well, the biggest piece of this is obviously the salary threshold. Remember when you are trying to determine whether an individual is exempt for purposes of the minimum wage and overtime laws? You've got two aspects, two tests that you have to look at. One is the salary threshold test, and the other is the job duties test. Well, it used to be that the salary threshold, in order to uh, be able to be exempt, uh, was $23,660 a year, or 455 annually. Uh, it has now been raised, and so the new proposed rule has the annual threshold at $35,308, which comes out to $679 per week. It is certainly up from where it used to be and has been since 2004, but it is also certainly well below the approximately 47000 that the Obama administration proposed rule had it. 
So really, as we've all been speculating, uh, it's a kind of cut the baby in half and has a proposed salary threshold right in between. So again, it's going to be $35,308 or $679 per week as your new salary threshold. But as we say all the time, keep in mind that we are only talking about the federal exemption rules. There are so many states out there that have higher salary threshold um, amounts and you need to follow the states as well regardless of what the federal level is. Second big component in the new rule has to do with the highly compensated test. Unlike uh, the salary threshold, which came down from what the Obama administration rule was, we're now seeing an increase in the proposed highly compensation test. That's going up from $100,000 to $147,415. Again, from $100,000 even to $147,415. And the caveat here is, again, to keep in mind that not every state recognizes this highly compensated test. But for those that do, and at least for federal FLSA purposes, the new salary threshold to be able to uh, meet the highly compensated test will be 147,415. Component number three in the new rule, employers are now uh, able to satisfy up to 10% of this minimum salary requirement through the payment of certain non-discretionary bonuses and incentive compensation payments as long as they are paid on an annual or more frequent basis. So again, 10% of that minimum salary threshold can be uh, satisfied through the use of these certain non-discretionary bonuses and incentive compensation payments. The fourth big component of the new rule is what's referred to as a catch-up payment, which means that you have one pay period if the employee had not been paid uh, the required minimum threshold uh, as we're getting close to the end of the year, employers now have one pay period at the end to make up a shortfall of up to 10%. So up to 10% of the salary uh, to meet this threshold uh, can be made up in the last pay period at the end of the year. And then the next big component that's in there uh, is that every four years, the Department of Labor uh, is going to be instituting increases in the salary threshold, but they'll only be doing it through a notice and comment period. It won't be sort of based on an automatic increase every three or every four years. The Department of Labor is expecting to do it every four years, but only after a notice and comment period. So those are the biggest components of what's in the new proposed rule. What is out? What is not in? Well, as I just mentioned, this automatic increase concept, people were speculating, well, does the Department of Labor want to go through this whole rigmarole again? And if not, are they going to try to build in some automatic increases that get triggered either by the number of years that pass, by something having to do with inflation? Well, there are no automatic increases in the new rule. Also not in, we were hearing a lot about and speculating a lot about whether the new salary threshold would be different based on geography, where you were in the country, or maybe by industry, that certain industries and certain jobs within those industries would have different minimum salary thresholds. Uh-uh. We've got the new salary threshold, $35,308 on an annual basis, $679 on a weekly basis, and that applies 
across the board, all geography, all industries, and there is no different. And then lastly, and this is the real big one that's not in, there is no change to the job duties tests. So those job duties tests, which form the second bucket of things you have to look at when deciding whether to properly classify someone as exempt, those are not changing since the last time we did this in 2004. So again, uh, the Department of Labor will get its comments and have its comment period and then will review and ultimately publish a final rule that they are not expecting to be uh, effective until uh, approximately January 2020. And we are all expecting, as I also said a moment ago, that there will be some lawsuits filed. Uh, as a result of this draft proposed rule, but at least we've got it. At least we see what we're dealing with now, um, and well, we'll see if this is going to be the form that it takes when it's published in its final form ultimately. But stay tuned and keep it right here. I will continue to keep you updated on uh, all developments having to do with this overtime rule. Now to our guest now spot. And David Rieschenberg. He is, as I said, a cousin partner of mine here in New York. His practice involves all aspects of antitrust, including litigation, counseling, and mergers and acquisitions. David regularly advises Fortune 500 clients on antitrust implications of various business initiatives and on unfair, uh, unfair sorry, competition issues. David's also coordinated responses to investigations that are conducted by the United States Department of Justice and the U.S. Federal Trade Commission. When it comes to your restrictive covenants and your non-compete agreements, for most of you, it's just been employment law issues that you have been considering. Now there's a whole new ballgame when it comes to restrictive covenants and non-competes, the antitrust implications, and David's here with me to talk about those implications. Dave, how are you? I'm great, Mike. How are you? Thanks Good. for having me. Absolutely. Happy to have you here. And In fact, my producers uh, of the podcast uh, have told me in the notes that I got before the show uh, that one of your goals, uh, if not in life, but at least for 2019, is that you were dying to get on this podcast. Is, is that true? It's a, uh, it's, I, I have few things that I need to do uh, this year that uh, haven't already happened that, uh, that hit my top bucket list. So. And we're only in March. March. We're only in March. It's all gravy from here. Yeah, I mean, and uh, I, I mean, I wish I actually had producers, but um, in any event, I, I am glad you are here. Uh, happy to, to have you on the episode. Um, so, why don't you briefly describe the nature of your legal practice and what you do? Sure. So, I'm kind of the competition consigliere to companies and uh, and others. So, whether you're competing via uh, smart pricing, smart products, via joint ventures, via agreements. I'm counseling companies and individuals on how they can do that best and making sure that they comply with competition laws that are referred to as antitrust laws. So really I'm a competition uh, guru, if you will. I like that, a competition guru. Is that what's on your bio or your, uh, your business card? Not not yet. I'm, I'm working on the, uh, the official uh, approvals for that one. I like it. So uh, there may be and probably are some HR folks and labor and employment professionals listening to the episode who are thinking of themselves right now, well, what does an antitrust lawyer or a competition lawyer, as you put it, have to do with employment law and an employment law podcast? What would you say to that? 
It's a good question. So most people I know that I've ever met really want a high salary, a great job, lots of great job opportunities, lots of ways to make a living and do things like a, like a podcast. And so when employment uh, lawyers or employment agreements limit, arguably limit people's ability to go to different employers, get different jobs, negotiate their salaries, negotiate and all these things, that's where you start getting antitrust or competition lawyers saying, oh, I wonder if that restraint on someone's employment might violate the antitrust laws. Um, so in, antitrust laws are important. They need to they need to exist so that we can all, uh, employers can go after us uh, and increase our salaries and increase our opportunities. Yeah, and we'll talk about sort of the recent Department of Justice uh, kind of development, but this isn't a totally, you know, new 2018-2019 phenomenon that antitrust is having some implications in employment law, certainly. No, absolutely. So kind of the case that put these issues on the map and in, in what you just described were these cases the Department of Justice brought in Silicon Valley against eBay, Adobe, and others for allegedly agreeing to not hire each other's engineers to keep their their best talent. So the DOJ got notice of that and said, this is a problem, um, and brought some cases that led to a bunch of settlements and led to this October of 2016 guidance that said, if companies are agreeing not to solicit each other's employees, you are hereby on notice that we're going to come after you criminally for that, because we're going to treat it as the same thing as companies fixing prices on oil. Um, that it's just as bad to competition to have people limiting their employment as you know pay, uh, paying too much for for gas. So it's interesting you raise that because I would say prior to 2015 and 2016, um, this was definitely on the. Uh, the, the issues that antitrust bumped up against, but there, I'd argue there really wasn't much of a, a focus on it. Uh, critics of antitrust laws actually said, well, when antitrust laws, one thing it looks at is mergers. So should company A be allowed to merge with company B? And people would want to say, well, they shouldn't let this merger go through because jobs are going to be eliminated. A bunch of people are going to be fired. And antitrust scholars would say something like, well, that's efficient because those people shouldn't be employed by the merge entity. They can go find other jobs. So I think there was a, a idea out there that antitrust was kind of anti-employment opportunity. These cases, 2015, 2016, through now are really an opportunity to say, no, antitrust is on the side of, of employment opportunities. So I think it's been an interesting and appropriate development yeah, that, that's that, been happening. Yeah, that is actually very interesting to me. Um, and, and so that's the hook, right? So with antitrust, people think of antitrust, they think of it in terms of pricing and, and restraints on pricing and, and the market. Um, but that's the hook when it comes to employment law, that to the extent uh, that discussions or restraints on employee mobility, for example, uh, are affecting um, uh artificially the market it has the same kind of antitrust implications that's right because people are you know when you offer your services to a law firm like you and i or, or to you are a service provider you are a labor input um and you are selling your services and so there's as i said there's nothing different between that and selling oil where people can't be um, fixing prices and driving up prices. So everybody wants opportunity, everybody wants competition, and uh, people are going to look uh, critically at things that foreclose that kind of uh, that dialogue. 
it's fascinating, and I think a lot of people out there, certainly companies, you know, HR professionals, employment lawyers, uh, have not historically thought about the antitrust implications on things in the non-compete world that people have been talking about drafting and, and trying to enforce uh, certainly for years. And what's interesting about what you said a moment ago with the whole Department of Justice is, is you know, nothing gets people's attention quite like telling them that there could be not only personal or individual liability, but criminal liability. Absolutely. Um, no, it's a great point. And, you know, I've seen, uh, you know, people have come to me and say, well, isn't competition for people different than competition for for products? And the answer to that, uh, according to economists and antitrust law right now, is no, there's there's no difference. Um, so yeah, you definitely get people's attention on the criminal side. I think that's what the guidance did in 2016. Now, as we'll get into, there's a debate over how broadly that guidance goes uh, that we're going to get into on no poach. So what they said in the guidance was no poach between company A and competitor company Company B, but now people have been challenging. Well, what about no poach provisions in franchise agreements, where Burger King is telling its franchisees not to? Um, and I should strike that I'm not sure that Burger King actually is a part of these cases, so um, disregard that one. But uh, when a franchise says you're not allowed to hire. Uh, franchisee A isn't allowed to solicit companies from franchisee B, is that a naked criminal no poach agreement? And there's a big debate going on about that. So it's it's interesting and you need to delve into the facts that we'll get into, but you know, these definitely these things get people's attention. So let's spend a couple of minutes talking about these various agreements that companies use all the time. You know, we at least in the employment law world talk about the umbrella term non-compete agreements. Um, but I think we all know that uh, non-compete could be referring to a specific type of agreement, but also used uh, as an umbrella term. And so I want to be um, clear as to what kind of agreements we're talking about here. So uh, let's go through a few of these and, and get your thoughts on them from an antitrust perspective, or at least what the risk is that a company should be considering when looking to use this type of agreement. And, and we'll start with that, with the pure non-compete, not as an umbrella term, but as this uh, provision which limits you, uh, limits an employee from going to another company as a competitor. What's the antitrust implication with those types of agreements specifically? Yeah, so on all these things we're about to discuss, I'll go over like two general uh, dynamics that are going to apply to all these types of agreements. One is, why are you restricting the employee? That's going to be my first question to you. Why did you need to do this other than to, um, you know, profit. And two, I'm going to be asking you about what is the scope of that restriction? How long is the restriction? To what geography does it apply to? Um, to which employees does it apply to? So really for all of these, I'm going to be digging into those details and asking you, okay, well, what's the situation here? So the first thing that comes to mind that I've run into in my practice is I have a business. I sold that business to a big company. And as part of that business, um, the big company made me sign a piece of paper that says, I am not going to compete with the, with the, with the company that I just sold my company to for the next three years for, um, you know, in the state of New York. And I would say, well, that actually makes sense because 
um, part of the value of the business I just sold is to make sure that they are able to leverage and integrate and do all the things that they paid me for for my business. And so it actually makes sense that for a couple of years and for a limited geography, I can't compete with the person I just sold to. So that's your classic thing that occurs. And so that goes to the why and what scope. Now, if they're going to be saying, well, you know, I'm going to make sure that you're never able to compete anywhere in the world for in anywhere, uh, you know, for, for any of the following employees that I might say is overbroad. From an right? antitrust from perspective. From an antitrust perspective. Because certainly we look at those same kinds of concepts in the employment law world, but so even from an antitrust standpoint, you think that, uh, you know, the governing bodies would have an issue with that also. Right, because then you're taking me and my, the, 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 the value that I provide to the marketplace and you're taking me off from anywhere nationally and anywhere. Now, you could come back at that and say, well, I, I agreed to it. Maybe I would never agree to it to sell my company, but at the same time, just giving you a sense of the scope and, and why issues. People want to see that there are reasonable restraints for good reason that make um, economic sense. And when I say economic sense, that you want to make sure that there are lots of innovators out there, lots of companies out there, lots of freedom to create ideas and so that to give everybody jobs that's what you want to create if, if it looks like you're just grabbing everything for yourself and being overbroad that's where an antitrust um, enforcer might raise their eyebrow and say okay really um, did you really need to do that so on non-competes again let's say someone's employment contract friends of mine and come to this and they said okay we can fire you at any time and then once we fire you you can't work for anybody in the united states that arguably competes with us for x period of time like well that's you know that's an antitrust violation if it's even if it's even enforceable because then you're limiting the person's opportunity there's no there's no reason like even if you want to say okay this person had trade secrets or something like that we could we could talk about that but um no that's just onerous and and greedy where you're trying to foreclose the market between uh, you and your competitors for this viable um person who can provide services to a, a whole bunch of companies so and non-solicits, um, uh, sort of a subset of the non-compete uh, umbrella term where we're looking to have a provision where, uh, sure, you can go work for anyone you want to work with, um, but you can't solicit whether it's customers or clients, or you can't solicit other current employees of your former company. Um, what does the antitrust uh, bodies say to that? Same, same rubric. Uh, why do you need to do this apart from avoiding competition for when somebody leaves your company. You need to have some, what I'd call pro-competitive, something that aids competition. So you're trying to protect trade secrets. You're trying to protect uh, relationships that you've invested in as a company for a long time that allow you to compete against other companies that implicitly provides all these opportunities. So, you know, I antitrust lawyers, people are like, oh God, it's, it's uh, it's not black and white. It's often not. It really depends on the facts. Welcome um, to lawyering yeah, generally. But uh, absolutely, absolutely. But particularly in in the antitrust realm, uh, different markets, different companies, even things that look exactly the same, the di the differences can really differ. So antitrust to non solicits. My first reaction is why? Just why? What's the uh, business interest? Yeah. What's the what's the pro competitive business interest that allows you to be a better company that allows your business to expand that allows you to create more jobs because in this sphere sphere that we're talking about what's 
how are you going to create more jobs? How are you going to create more opportunities? Interesting. Um, if you're not doing that and you're just, you know, hoarding um, and taking everything for yourself, that's when people are going to be um, skeptical. And so you mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, and this really it seems this is how, you know, it came up with the Department of Justice, uh, non-poaching agreements. So what, what's interesting about those is you're no longer talking about Company A entering into agreement with Company A's own employees uh, in terms of what they can and can't do post-separation. Now you're talking about Company A having some agreement, express or implied, with Company B between two entities. Yeah. Um, what's, what's the deal with the non-poaching agreements from an antitrust standpoint. So what everybody agrees on is when eBay and Adobe and the other Silicon Valley competitors agree not to take each other's engineers, that is a clear what's referred to as per se antitrust violation. All you need to do to establish an antitrust violation is you agreed not to go after each other's employees. Done. Uh, everybody agrees that's per se. Everybody agree, well, agrees and knows that DOJ intends to enforce those criminally because it's just as bad as fixing oil prices. Even in a settlement agreement? Even so we, we see that all the time. Okay. So now we've sued, you know, one of our employees for breaching a non-compete. We also sue their new employer uh, for, you know, intentional uh, interference with contract, for example. Uh, we finally settle the case. Uh, we settle with the uh, employee. Um, and now we, as part of the settlement, we have a provision with the new employer which says, all right, we're going to agree for a certain period of time. We're not going to go through this anymore, and we're not going to hire each other's employees. You're saying that's a potential problem from the antitrust world. Well, you stuck to the employee for most of that fact pattern. So employee disputes between former employer and employee, to me, that's a totally different. That's not what we're talking about. We're okay. talking about company A and company B. If company A and company B end up in litigation, they are competitors, and they agree not to go after each other for purpose, I would say, well, you know, it isn't na what's referred to as naked, not trying to be, uh, you know, uh, raunchy or anything, but a naked uh, people just getting together on the street and say, we're not going to go after each other. It's not that. That's it's the least raunchy that, that this it, podcast has ever been, just so yeah, you know. Yeah, perfect. But so, so for my fact pattern on that settlement agreement, if part of that settlement agreement where they were settling the litigation over that particular employee, if there is a provision which says, beyond this employee for the next two years, for the next five years, we're not going to hire each other's employees, you're saying that's a potential problem. Potential problem, absolutely, because um, it's interesting it's a really good question. So you, what you would say when you're defending that agreement is that was necessary to accomplish the settlement, to, to put this to bed and to make sure that every, all the lines were drawn and all the T's were crowded and the I's were dots. This is what made it work for everybody. Um, but I, I fairly, well, this isn't exactly in the employment law realm. In the, in the general antitrust realm, the government, the FTC, has been extremely active in going after settlement agreements that they are saying are per se antitrust violations. One example of this, not to go too far off the deep end, are brand pharma company sues generic pharma company for violating its patents when it tried to enter the market. They then settle, and they settle, and the generic agrees not to enter, not to release its generic product for a certain period of time. And for a long time, antitrust in cases said, well, as long as you, as long as the brand company had a patent that arguably could have kept them off the market for this period of time, you're fine. You're within the scope of the patent. Now, that agreement the Supreme Court held is subject to antitrust analysis where have you foreclosed competition from the generic from entering via that agreement? And so now, 
people are uh, hip to the to the new law and are structuring settlement agreements to avoid what the Supreme Court said was a problem. But same thing here. We haven't seen that case. Uh, we haven't seen that case where uh, the no poach uh, is part of an ancillary litigation settlement, but a an agreement to settle a case is an agreement. All agreements are subject to the antitrust laws. And then I'd go back to my original questions I said to you. Why? Why did you need that term? Why did you need that scope? Why did you need that duration? How are all those things necessary to promote competition between the two companies? And if the answer is, you know, no, I really didn't need that duration. No, I didn't need that scope. Could be. It could be. It could be. It could be a problem. So let's um, step aside for a moment from litigation uh, and from the context of entering into specific agreements. And I get this question um, uh, often. What if you have a company that's part of either an industry industry group or some networking group or some other organization? They talk generally about the workforce, about salaries, and what uh, you know companies in this industry are doing vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, hiring salaries and, and those kinds of things. You know, is there a spectrum that we've got to be concerned about? Even just having those discussions, what, what is the, uh, the what are the antitrust implications for those kinds of things? Yeah. So the, my uh, my two word basic response is be be careful, and let me let me talk about. Why? So I've been hired by industry associations to stand up in front of the room and say, before we go on this great industry collaboration where we establish a standard and we're exchanging ideas and we're coming up with new products and new ways to reach consumers, do not discuss your pricing with each other. Do not discuss your your competitive strategy that you just talked heard about at the board. Do not talk about where you're you're selling. These things are really tricky territory because there are per se violations of antitrust law where if you're agreeing on, okay, wink, wink, nod, nod, you're going to stay on the east side of town and I'm going to stay on the west side of town. These are what you call opportunities for problematic conduct. So I say be careful because it's not that, you know, you necessarily entered into an agreement that you that you uh, that you agreed to stay out of each other's way, but it's just it's raising the risk profile here. And so when you're talking about in this as we've been talking about the no poach environment, the non-compete environment, you're raising your risk profile to and you really need to ask yourself, all right, you know, to what purpose do I really need to be sharing this information? And I'd say that the main question, the second level question is, you know, are we collaborating for a pro, what antitrust law would say, pro-competitive purpose? We're putting out a new product. We're putting, doing a joint venture. We need to, you know, talk about these things for the betterment of society so that we're putting out, um, creating more opportunities and creating more products. But it's tricky and you definitely want um, some advice and some thinking going into those conferences uh, to make sure that you're steering clear of, of the problematic areas because my suspicion is that there are people out there who haven't listened to an antitrust to a competition geek like me saying <laughs> this is problematic and they say oh it'd be really smart to uh, to talk about how we're not going to go above $20 an hour for these kinds of employees. 
So just, just <laughs> note for the record that you called yourself the geek. I never referred to you as the geek. I am self-proclaimed antitrust guru <laughs> geek. Uh, and so, all right, so just to be clear on that last point, and, and it's a real interesting one, you're not saying that, that merely having the discussion uh, either as an industry group, formal or informal, uh, is itself an anti-violation, antitrust violation. The problem is really one of proof um, that it raises the risk by having the conversation. And at some point, you know, you may be forced to prove a negative uh, in some respects uh, as to well, what was the purpose of the discussion, what was the impact uh, on on um, the market and competition and all of that. So you're not saying that having the discussion in and of itself is a violation, just that it raises the eyebrows perhaps that's exactly right so you're at an industry conference um you have a conversation people saw you having the conversation and then after the industry conference all of a sudden no one starts hiring each other's engineers gets the wind of whomever wants to complain about it that's a coincidence oh isn't that a strange coincidence that that conference and then you're engaging in in discovery on on the thing that you just you just alluded to so um careful be careful yeah. All right. Um, and so lastly, are there any other uh, hiring practices that you've seen challenged uh, in antitrust cases? So one thing that uh, I'll call on the flip side of all this stuff, that on the one hand, uh, well, let me just lay it out. Uh, I've been involved in cases involving predatory hiring. So the allegation here I is love that... You know, the, the great thing yeah. about antitrust, I'm sorry to interrupt, the great thing about yeah. antitrust is you, you come up with like these scary terms um, <laughs> that, you know, just signal that you need to talk to somebody or you need to look at it. I mean, predatory hiring, uh, it, it's great. Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, please. I, uh, <laughs> I, I but the, the movie Predator is a little past my time, but I understand it was it was really good, and I'm not sure who, who came up with it. Um <laughs> But uh, predatory hiring is when one company says, you hired my employees for a ridiculous salary, which we all agree everybody wants, but then you told them to stay home and play video games instead of doing what they used to do for me. Keeping them off the street. Keeping them off the streets. You've hired people to not actually benefit, but just to deprive them of your competitors because you're bigger and you're you're better. So here's a fact pattern where, you know, what, what our... Antitrust law wants to encourage is great salaries, great hiring, great opportunities. But here's a an instance where it's bad because allegedly you're just gonna you're trying to put your competitor out of business, and um, and then you don't use them, and then you just let the the video the, the employee you hired go, and then he and many of his brethren don't uh, or she, excuse me. Um, don't have opportunities. So that's an interesting one. And there are many other clever ones that I've seen. And I would say on that fact pattern, you really want to document. And it goes back to my my overall advice, which is why did you do it? What was the scope? Did you hire a consultant to uh, to uh, to set the salary that you that you set, you have a board, you have approval procedures. Make sure that you're documenting why you're hiring people and your justification for hiring people, just in case your competitor starts to accuse you of um, hiring people for no purpose other than to put somebody out of out of business. So, because we really we want that opportunity, we want. Um, 
that movement to exist. But you know, more broadly, and sort of what I do to, to your first question is, I'm in the business of how people compete to essentially out-compete their competitors. Um, and one way is to take their best employees. And so that's, that is good and pro-competitive as long as you're doing it uh, up against this discussion with a, a legit purpose and you're not putting them on the shelf and you actually are gonna use them. Uh, but this is something that, um, you know, this is a, a dynamic marketplace where everybody's trying to compete with everybody and it's a question of whether or not you have a good uh, purpose that creates opportunities for, for all. That's what our system, not to get uh, sued, um, too uh, off the rooftop, but our, our economy and our system really depends on that on that competition between employers and companies on on every single level. So happy to help uh, you, your listeners, or anybody if you're thinking about how to compete um, or what you're doing to make sure that you're in best position. Um, I'm often, while I have a law degree, I'm kind of more thought of as a a uh, competition guide to how to outcompete somebody within within the law, which you know could be could be good sometimes. Yeah, it's great, and and the key always is, and I say this all the time, it's not you know remembering or even knowing all of the answers to everything, but the fact that uh, you know certainly in this. Uh, in this 25 minutes or so, you've raised so many interesting questions that people should look at uh, and consider uh, when dealing with uh, situations that they've been dealing with for years and decades. Uh, but now that you've introduced some perhaps new questions to look at, uh, I think is invaluable. So really appreciate you coming on and uh, talking about all this stuff. Thanks, Mike. Well, I hope you found that informative and useful as always. Thank you for listening, as always. That is all the time we have for this episode. Until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.